From Washington, VOA presents Issues in the News. Hello and welcome to Issues in the News. I'm Kim Lewis and joining me on the panel this week are VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA Chief National Correspondent Steve Herman. Welcome Anita and Steve. Well, here are the issues. After a months-long stalemate, President Biden invited House Speaker Kevin McCarthy and other congressional leaders to discuss the U.S. debt ceiling. Administration officials insisted that Biden has no plans to drop his demand for a clean debt ceiling increase, even after Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen's warning that Congress may only have until June 1st to avert a disastrous default. President Biden plans to send 1,500 active duty troops to the U.S.-Mexico border starting as soon as May 10th. The decision comes as the government ends COVID-19-era pandemic restrictions known as Title 42 that allowed for the rapid removal of migrants at the border. Mass shootings in the U.S. continue. A suspect believed to be the man accused of gunning down five people in an execution-style mass shooting in Cleveland, Texas, has been taken into custody. And police have arrested a former U.S. Coast Guardsman suspected of killing one person and wounding four in a shooting at a medical building in Atlanta, Georgia. On the international front, Russia accuses the U.S. of being behind what it says was a drone attack on the Kremlin intended to kill President Putin. The U.S. and Ukraine both deny these claims. Persistent fighting between Sudan's rival generals undermined efforts to firm up a truce as a senior U.N. official arrived for talks on providing relief to millions of trapped civilians. Reporters Without Borders released its World Press Freedom Index for 2023, and it shows that journalists around the world face an increasingly hostile environment. Well, those are the issues, and let's get started. Well, Anita, President Biden has now invited the top four congressional leaders to a meeting on May 9th, setting the stage for his first substantial talks with Republicans on the issue of the debt ceiling since February 1st. Yet, while the timetable may have changed, Biden officials said the president's message to the GOP will not. So then what can we expect from this meeting? That's a really good question. A lot of us are wondering the same thing. What can we expect when we have Biden on one side saying that the debt ceiling being raised is non-negotiable for him? He wants this to happen without conditions. And the Republicans on the other side, led by Speaker McCarthy, insisting on spending cuts as a condition to raise this debt ceiling. It seems like two sides are both very dug in. Obviously, you know, Biden, with 36 years of experience in the Senate, is used to debate and compromise and meeting in the middle, but I'm not sure how they're going to work this out and forge a meaningful compromise that's going to make both of them happy. Time is running out on this, although uh, Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen has warned lawmakers that the day that the government would run out of money, the so-called X date, could come as early as June 1. There's only a few days left of actual working days when uh, both the Senate and House will be in session and the president will be in uh, D.C. So really, it appears that May 16th is the last day that all of the players are scheduled to be in Washington and be able to work this out. 
The business community is really standing by watching this. For example, Mark Zandi, chief economist for Moody's Analytics, he said a stock market upheaval may be what forces either side of the Biden-McCarthy standoff to give. So is this what it's going to take, the Dow Jones going down a thousand points before something is actually done between the two sides? Right. So both of these leaders are staring down important elections in 2024. The main issue for American voters is the economy. If they take a step that can be framed by their opponents as bringing down the economy, making inflation more difficult for Americans, making the price of paying off a home more expensive, they're both going to pay for that politically. So they do have to balance that. And as you just said, Wall Street does not like uncertainty. When we came close to a debt ceiling the last time, there was havoc on Wall Street and the market tanked. And everybody, of course, wants to ensure that we don't have a repeat of this. So I guess we can, at this point, have to see how this upcoming meeting is going to pan out. And Steve, you reported that President Biden plans to send more troops to the U.S.-Mexico border starting as soon as May 10th as a surge at the border is expected with the end of Title 42. So what more can you tell us about these plans? Well, these will be about 1,500 active duty troops to supplement 2,500 members of the National Guard that are already in the area. Now, what the military and the administration are emphasizing is these troops will not be in direct contact with any migrants. They are there to provide administrative work. Perhaps they'll be involved in some surveillance activities, but it is meant to free up the members of the uh, Border Patrol and uh, the Customs Service to really take care of this uh, anticipated surge of migrants coming across the border. But there have been some measures put in place by the administration that will make it uh, easier to quickly return people who cross the border who are deemed not to be eligible for asylum. And I just want to highlight that the Biden administration is not the first to send troops to the border. Of course, President Trump did that. He sent, I believe, 5,000 troops. But it does raise an interesting question because we're bracing ourselves right now with the end of Title 42, with the end of the COVID emergency on May 11th, with an unprecedented surge of people trying to come across the southern border of the United States. And these are, you know, human beings with very practical needs. And a question that really struck me in the White House briefing was when a reporter from one of the Spanish language stations, Univision, asked the press secretary, she said, if this is a humanitarian crisis that we're facing down, why is the president sending soldiers and not social workers, not psychiatrists, not nurses? And the simple and very disappointing answer to that is federalism, because the president of the United States doesn't have a core of social workers, psychiatrists, and people of that ilk on his beck and call, like he does, active duty military assets. And so that's the simple reason as to why he's sending soldiers. But for a lot of Americans, it looks a certain way, and it looks uncomfortable for a lot of Americans, especially those who are immigrants who have come here to this country and faced a lot of challenges on the way. To see soldiers on the border, it can be a bit galling for some of those Americans. Yeah, and what's notable about this, it's not only Republicans criticizing this move, but some Democrats. The chair of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, Bob Menendez, calls this unacceptable, says deploying the military to the border only signals that migrants are a threat that require troops to contain. Ilhan Omar, a Democratic a member of Congress from Minnesota, says the policy will only victimize the innocent.
But also, I think it's just important to underscore that mass migration events, like we're seeing, for example, in Sudan right now, these present huge logistical challenges for administrative units, like cities, like counties, for governments, basically. Because when you have that many people, they need to be housed, they need access to basic services, they need protection. And so it is important to highlight that the 206,000 encounters that were reported on the border last month, which is a huge number, this does present a large management and logistical challenge for the United States. This affects the whole immigration system, which is uh, really failing in this country. You have more than 20 million applications for visas and other immigration benefits that are stuck in backlog and some cases are just dragging on for years and years. Yes. So let's move on to our next topic where mass shootings continue. Anita, is there anything more coming out of the White House on these mass shootings? There's an abundance of thoughts and prayers, which is, I think, the biggest tool that the Biden White House has at this time in the absence of legislative action, which, as you know, President Biden is calling for gun reform laws, which he calls common sense laws, which will eliminate access to high-powered rifles like the AR-15 military-style rifle that this shooter in Texas used to kill those five people, including, by the way, a nine-year-old child. So this is a big debate. This pits him against the Republican establishment and the National Rifle Association, which has a vested interest in the continued selling of these weapons. But I don't see this as resolving anytime soon through legislation, which leaves the president in the unfortunate position of having lots to say about this, but having nothing that he can meaningfully do. The numbers are staggering. So far this year, we have almost 15,000 gun-related deaths in this country, more than 6,000 of those attributed to homicide, murder, and unintentional deaths. Mass shootings have claimed the lives of nearly 200 individuals and injured, ready for this, more than 11,000, including a lot of children and teens. That is just this year. Obviously, a lot of people are outraged. Raphael Warnock, who is a senator from the state of Georgia, where this latest mass shooting in Atlanta occurred, took the Senate floor. He says, we're behaving as if this is normal. But there's this unspoken assumption that this can't happen to me. And Warnock said he shudders to say it. But the truth is, in a real sense, it is only a matter of time. This kind of tragedy comes knocking on your door. So if that's not a wake up call for Americans, I don't know what will be. I just want to say something else about this Cleveland shooting that is very interesting and somewhat inconvenient, I think, for the White House. The suspect, who was, by the way, taken into custody while hiding under a pile of laundry at a neighbor's house, he is a national of Mexico. His immigration status in the U.S. is not known at this time, but what is known is that he was deported four times. And so this is going to be turned into a political football by the right and the left. The right is likely to say, well, the problem here is really immigration. We need to tighten the border. The problem is people. And the left is likely to say the problem is guns. And where you fall on that argument tells us a lot about, you know, what side you are politically in the United States. But this is how this is going to play out. It's a fact that this man would not have been able to kill five people in such an astonishingly short amount of time if he had not had a high-powered weapon. 
This is a fact. And anybody who behaved that way, who committed that act, it's just unequivocally wrong. It doesn't matter where you're from. It's illegal everywhere in the world to do what he did. So I think we need to just separate that and identify the root cause of how this came to be and how we got ourselves in this situation. Very good point on that topic. Well, it's time now for a quick break. And when we return, a look at a couple of issues on the international front. Issues in the News is coming to you from the Voice of America in Washington. If you would like to download the program, it's free on iTunes. Just click on the iTunes tab on our website at voanews.com issues. While you're there, check out our other programs, Press Conference, USA, and Encounter. Also visit us on Facebook and leave a comment or two. Then like us at Current Affairs with Carol Castiel. Now back to our panel via Skype, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA chief national correspondent Steve Herman. The Kremlin claims that Ukraine launched two drones at Russian President Vladimir Putin's residence. It also noted more explosions and fires have occurred in Russia in recent weeks. What is the latest on this situation? This is a whodunit for the ages, I guess. I mean, Vladimir Putin is accusing Ukraine, firstly, of doing this. Ukraine is denying it. Now he's accusing Washington. Washington is denying it. The prevailing theory, which does require you, I think, to get a little bit into conspiracies, is that Russia did this to plant a false flag and justify their actions during a proposed upcoming Ukrainian counteroffensive. Right now, nobody knows. It could be a very long time, perhaps years, before we really know what happened. What is also plausible is, as you noted about explosions and fires taking place inside Russia, that the Ukrainians may have agents, sympathizers behind enemy lines, so to speak, inside Russia that are capable of carrying out these attacks. But if this was a false flag operation, it also would be an embarrassment uh, with the Russian public for the Kremlin to acknowledge that uh, so-called enemy drones were able to smash into the Kremlin and get through undetected. This really puts uh, Russia in an embarrassing light, uh, no matter what was the true cause of it. And it puts Putin himself in an embarrassing light, because if you think of the long list of people who would not be very sad to see Vladimir Putin dead, that's a very long list of people. And I think the Russian people surely must know that. There's a wealth of suspects here who might want to take out Vladimir Putin. Who has the ability, who has the actual will is the question right now. But in terms of intent, in terms of desire to see Putin gone, that is a lengthy list of people. And the Kremlin is characterizing this as an assassination attempt against uh, Putin. And there is concern that uh, gauging it in that type of language could be used for Russia to take what it would call retaliation and carry out, I don't know, what kind of acts in Ukraine that are beyond what we've already seen that have already been really horrific. So there is a lot of nervousness right now, not only in uh, Kiev, but uh, also in Washington about what might happen next. Yes, very good points that you all brought out. Well, in Sudan, a high-ranking United Nations official arrived, Martin Griffiths, to, as he said, reaffirm the UN's commitment to the Sudanese people. But the fighting is taking its toll on people, creating a humanitarian crisis for Sudan and neighboring countries where people are fleeing. Anita, your take on this so far? 
This is a very difficult situation, first and foremost, for the people in Sudan who are caught in the middle, for the 800,000 people who the UN believes are going to be fleeing the country in coming days and weeks, for the 300,000 people who have been internally displaced, and for the meager hundreds of people who the Sudanese government says have been killed. Lots of people suspect that that number is a lot higher. This is a very difficult situation. And the big question for me right now is, are these two combatant leaders, I hesitate to call them both generals, by the way, because one is a general and the other is a leader of a paramilitary. Are these two combatant leaders using this seven-day ceasefire to reconcile or to regroup? Because there are indications right now that they're both kind of carving out territory in Sudan and they appear to be evenly matched which raises the possibility in both of their minds right now that they can win if they have a little bit of time to regroup and they can go at it again. And this puts them in a poor position for negotiation with all of these envoys who are going in right now and trying to broker peace. So that is my concern because Sudan is obviously a very, very important country. It's a very sensitive country. It is one that the United States has very strained relations with. And I'm afraid I don't see any quick resolution of this or any good options right now. And while these two military leaders try to figure out uh, what they're going to do, it is really the people of Sudan that are suffering. Even before this fighting broke out, about a third of the population of 46 million was depending on humanitarian aid. Sudan and its economy has been affected by decades of sanctions, international isolation. There's been always this corruption. And then the people, they've dealt with rampant inflation, currency devaluations, and sliding living standards. So it is just a disaster on top of a disaster for the people of Sudan. And I just want to highlight how powerless the United States is in this situation. As Steve just mentioned, Khartoum has been under sanctions for years. The state sponsor of terror designation was only lifted in 2020. But then these two combatant leaders mounted a coup in 2021, which meant that the U.S. had to then reimpose some of these restrictions. So the U.S. doesn't really have as much credibility here. They don't have as much of a cudgel because... They've already had strained relations with Sudan's. And, and Washington has said this. Now they have to work through this situation under the auspices of regional organizations like the African Union, which has its own internal politics and its own issues through EGAD and through other multilateral organizations like that. And, you know, that's a lot of cooks in the kitchen, number one. But that does mean that the immense power that Washington brings to bear in these diplomatic situations, the money basically that Washington brings and the force is blunted here. The bottom line is even if the fighting were to miraculously stop permanently tomorrow, we're going to be dealing with Sudan and the ramifications of all this for many years to come. Yes, it is definitely taking its toll on the people of Sudan. And I wanted to get in our last topic. Reporters Without Borders released its World Press Freedom Index for 2023, and it shows that journalists around the world face an increasingly hostile environment. The number of journalists in prison worldwide has reached a 30-year high as of the end of last year, and that's from the Committee to Protect Journalists. What are your thoughts on these latest findings? If you'll allow me a point of personal privilege, I would like to read the first line of VOA's first ever broadcast in 1942, where the anchor opened the broadcast by saying, the news may be good, the news may be bad, we shall tell you the truth. 
And this is the guiding principle of media organizations around the world that are facing these increasing restrictions. And I would just like to remind our listeners of the power of responsible truth-telling, which is what we, of course, practice here at VOA, and what journalists around the world are trying to do in the face of increased challenges. Yeah, it's not a very optimistic report uh, that we're seeing this year. Most of the world is facing challenges to press freedom, and according to Reporters Without Borders, 118 out of the 180 countries in its uh, annual index report that political actors in their countries were often or systematically involved in massive disinformation or propaganda campaigns. The report's also calling out the spread of false content uh, after Twitter was taken over by Elon Musk. Uh, Now we're facing also, as it points out, this rise of artificial intelligence generated content and photos, really hard to figure out what's true. And the Uh, disinformation industry really ramping up on an unprecedented scale. So reporters not only face personal threats, but everyone is facing a larger and larger threat from disinformation and misinformation. And I just want to highlight that the report points out that the United States, which is ranked 45 out of 180, has actually fallen three spots. And this is due to major structural barriers and consolidation of the media in the United States. So it is a little disappointing to see the country that is seen as, you know, the haven for free press, the beacon to slip in these rankings this year. Well, it's time now to find out what is weighing on the minds of our panelists this week. And Anita, what is weighing on your mind this week? I've been watching a civil case in New York City, and I'll just give you the precise and go on to what's weighing on my mind. This is a writer named E. Jean Carroll, who is suing former President Donald Trump for both rape and defamation for a rape that she says happened in the mid-90s in Manhattan. What I think is interesting about this case is In the year 2023, her testimony and the questioning she's facing is bringing to light a lot of persistent, untrue, harmful myths about sexual assault that are true around the world. Trump's lawyer had, you know, really grilled her on certain points. And I just want to highlight some of these myths that she has refuted quite bravely on the stand, that sexual assault only happens in poor communities. Not true. That it's reliably and timeously reported. Not true. The victims are always the predator's quote-unquote type, which was Donald Trump's defense. That's not a sensible defense. That all victims scream. In this case, E. Jean Carroll says she was in a panic. This is consistent with what a lot of caseworkers report of sexual assault victims. That all victims promptly call the police. That they tell their family. That perpetrators are mentally ill or psychotic. That rape is caused by sexual urges that most perpetrators are strangers, that victims asked for it, that victims who don't struggle are not rape victims, that men can't be victims, that women can't be perpetrators, that only gay men can be victims, that only gay men can be perpetrators. These are toxic narratives about sexual assault that we're seeing come to life in 2023 in the United States of America, when I really thought we were kind of better for this. And for everybody out there who's listening, who has been touched by sexual violence, I just think it's important to pay attention to this case and see how this particular victim is dismantling some of those really harmful, toxic narratives and restoring, I think, a lot of dignity to people who have been on the other end of sexual assault. Very good. Thank you, Steve. Well, I've been thinking a lot about uh, press freedom and news literacy, not only as a result of Press Freedom Day activities and the report we just talked about, but also 
after attending the annual dinner of the White House Correspondents Association, which is a big event in Washington that attracts a lot of celebrity wattage. But the event is essentially at its core a fundraiser for scholarships for journalism students. But it seems to me if we're looking at the reports, the issues with press freedom, the disinformation, that there needs to be a better push to educate the public and young people about the news and how to discern reputable information from disinformation. That's sort of my pledge is to try to figure out what can I do to help improve news literacy around the world, something beyond uh, what I'm doing as a Voice of America correspondent and as a part-time adjunct uh, lecturer of journalism at a university, because if we're just uh, doing all these reports and people don't believe them, then we have a really fundamental problem. Very nice. Thank you both. And we'll end the show on those thoughts. My thanks go to our panelists this week, VOA White House correspondent Anita Powell and VOA chief national correspondent Steve Herman. I'm Kim Lewis, and be sure to join us next weekend for more Issues in the News. <music>